My boss is in Israel, so I get a chance to come up here and speak, speak to you a few things. Uh, I want to speak about the sovereignty of God. This is an issue that I have dealt with from the first day that I, I came in to the kingdom. My struggle, I came in, <clears throat> I came in loving Christ like, like no business. I came in struggling, I came in kicking because of the life that I came from. And one of the things that I kicked and screamed about was God's full control over me. Every so often that word comes back and he has me digging into it again. Uh, dealing with various aspects of my life, sovereignty comes back. Do I understand that he is in full control? Do I understand, ah, no wonder it sounded so weird. Uh, do I understand that from beginning to end God is my sovereign God. He is my, my almighty God. He, is in, he knows everything about me even before I came. He knew and knows everything about me. Let me start this off. <clears throat> I'll try to lay some groundwork. I left some of the material behind. I'm glad I did because uh, things that we did extra took away from some of the time, but I think I can get the point across. Uh, R.C. Sproul tells a short story about a friend of his by the name of, uh, where is he? His name is John Guest, an Episcopalian priest who was, uh, I don't know if he still practices there in Pittsburgh, but at that particular time he was. And uh, he was just beginning, and he wanted to find out as much information as he could about those that were living in Pittsburgh, in Pennsylvania, and in the U.S. in general. So he went to an antiquarian. Okay. It, it, it's an antique shop with specific things involved. He wanted to look at past slogans, sayings from the American Revolution. And he did. He found them. He found sayings like, and I think we've all seen them, there, there's, a, there's a flag with a snake on it and it says, don't tread on me. He found, he found another slogan that said, uh, taxation without representation. And then he found an interesting saying that said, we serve no sovereign. And that's the one that baffled him. He was, coming, he was coming to be a priest to an American people. And that slogan, he says, how can I preach to an American people that have a built-in allergy against sovereignty? So it got him going. But R.C. RC makes a statement. He says, uh, as, as Americans... We're used to a democratic process of rule. When you're talking about sovereignty, he says you're talking about government and about authority. From a biblical perspective, when the scriptures speak of God's sovereignty, they reveal God's governmental rule and power over his entire universe. Is God in control of every single molecule in the universe? The answer to that question, Dr. Sproul says, will not determine whether you are a Christian, a Muslim, or Calvinist, or an Armenian. He says, but it will determine whether or not you're a theist or an atheist. So he says, don't you realize that if there's just one molecule in the universe running around loose outside the scope of the, of the sphere of God's divine control, 
authority and his power, then that single maverick molecule may be the grain of sand that changes the entire course of human history, that blocks God from keeping the promises that he has made to his people. It may be that one maverick molecule that will prevent Christ from the consummation of his kingdom. For if there is one maverick molecule, it would mean that God is not sovereign. If there's any element in the universe that is outside of his authority, then he is no longer God overall. Sovereignty belongs to deity. Sovereignty is a natural attribute of the creator. Thank you. God owns what he makes and he rules what he owns. Now, what do we mean, what do I mean by sovereignty? Uh, I'm speaking of the supremacy of God. I'm speaking of the kingship of God. And I speak of the Godhood of God. To say that God is sovereign is to declare that God is God. To say that God is sovereign is to declare that he is the most high, that he can do according to his own will in heaven and earth, including all of its inhabitants, so that no one can say to God, and of course we've never said that, God, what are you doing? This is the kind of sovereignty that I speak of, the kind of power and all authority that the Bible speaks of concerning God. Now, I went to look for the word sovereignty. I've done it before, and I knew it wasn't there. The word doesn't, doesn't show up as a, as a verse of Scripture. Hey, I'm looking for Daniel 3.5, or I'm looking for Isaiah, and I want to see, it says, God is sovereign. It doesn't say that. But it implies God's sovereignty. From Genesis to Revelation, his total rule, his total control is implied in, in verses of Scripture, in, in that entire Bible. Uh, to say that God is sovereign is to declare that he is almighty, that he is the possessor of all power in heaven and earth, right? That no one can confide his counsels, no one can upset his purpose, and no one can resist his will. Now, oh, there, there aren't going to be any graphics, so if you've got your Bibles handy, and there should be in the pew, we'll turn to a few, few selected scriptures. Let's go to Psalm 115, verse 3. For the most part, if you pick up your Bible and just sort of part it down the middle, you'll end up in Psalms. And then you just look for the numbers up on top. Psalm 115, verse 3. I've heard and read this little portion of scripture used by many, many saints that have gone and, and some that are still here in, in times of tribulations, in times of losing loved ones. And this verse is, for some reason, they've always, they've had this memorized it and, and, they've, and they've repeated it as their comfort. He says, but our God is in the heaven and he does whatever he pleases. Next time you're into something, think about this. Your God, this almighty God that we're talking about, is in the heavens, and he does what he pleases. It's hard for us because we get into situations, and the first thing we want to do, especially if they're tight situations, we like to complain. We're uneasy. We're, we're uncomfortable when tribulation comes in. But we have to understand that God is doing what he has promised. He has promised to take you and I and, and make us into the image of his son. 
and he'll do whatever it takes to do that. He is faithful. What he began in you and me, he will complete it. You and I have to go through the process. So, to say that God is sovereign is to declare, and you can go to Psalm 22, 28. To say that God is sovereign, we are to declare that God is the governor of all nations. And I use the word governor here is in, in terms of a king. You know, the governor rules the state, but the king rules the nation. God as king rules the entire universe. Everything that he created, he rules. He owns it, and he does as he wishes. Kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. In 22, 22 28, See, I have you guys turned to it, and I'm still. 22, 22, 28. For the kingdom is the Lord's, and he rules over the nations. And I mean all the nations. To say that God is sovereign is to declare that he is the only ruler. He's the only king of kings. And he's the only Lord of lords. If you want to look that up, you can go to 1 Timothy 6.15. A.W. Pink said that this Lord of Lords will display at the proper time he who is blessed and the only sovereign, the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. John Murray made a statement. He says, God made heaven and he made earth and by his spirit the heavens were garnished. He laid the foundations of the earth by the wisdom and founded the earth. By understanding he established the heavens. Sounds like Genesis and Psalms and Proverbs. He says that by understanding, he established the heavens, his hands stretched out the heavens, and all their host he commanded. Heaven and earth his hand made. And so those things came to be. He made the sea, the dry land. He is the first and the last. He's the alpha, the omega. He is the beginning, and he is the end. Job 38, God asked Job, he says, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you know even this much. The scripture says in, in Proverbs that the Lord by wisdom founded the earth and by understanding he established the heavens. If you turn to Isaiah 66, verses 1 and 2, this is what God said. I'll give you a little paraphrase when you get there. He said that heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. Where is the house that you will build for me? Where will my resting place be? Has not my hand made all these things? And so they came into being, declares the Lord. This is the one I esteem, he who is humble Oh, you left that in. Contrite and trembles at my word. It's not the one I wanted, so let's go back. Isaiah 66, 1 and 2. It is. It is. 
So he says, heaven is my throne and, and the earth is my footstool. In Jonah 1.9, when, when Jonah was getting ready to be thrown overboard, he makes a statement. He says, I'm a Hebrew and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. In Revelations, he says that I am the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning and the end, who is, who was, and who is to come. I am the Almighty. It's been said that in order for God to be sovereign, he must be three things. The first is he, he must be all-knowing. All-knowing is that he must have all knowledge about the past, the present, the future. If he lacked even a speck of knowledge about anything, anywhere, at any time, he would cease to be God. He is Lord, of, he is Lord over all creation. He must possess all knowledge. He cannot be taught anything. There isn't anything that is missing. He knows it all. There isn't a class that he has to take in order to learn something. He's got it all covered. Number two, he must be all-powerful. And we've been talking about that. He must possess all power to control all things at all times. If at any time this sovereign God, if at any time he does not have full control of everything and anything in the universe, he ceases to be God. Because at that point, he would be limited to someone or to something more powerful than him. And third, he must be absolutely free. He must be free to do whatever he wills to do, anywhere, at any time, to carry out his eternal purpose in every single detail without interference. If this was not possible, he would be less than free, and that would make him less than sovereign, and that would make him less than God. Now, God would have to have unqualified and absolute freedom. You and I don't know what that is. <clears throat> we live in a world where absolute freedom does not exist. Here's my example. And uh, Wadsworth, in his book, The Prelude, writes this, and it, it's, it's termed free as a bird. He says, I have heard people say that I am as free as a bird, free to do what I want, go where I want, to be what I want, etc., etc. He says, to be free as a bird is not to be free at all. The naturalist knows that the supposedly free bird actually lives in an, its entire life in a cage made of fears, of hunger, instincts. It is limited by weather conditions, varying air pressures, the local food supply, predatory beasts, and the strangest of all bonds, the irresistible compulsion to stay within the small plot of land and the air assigned to it. The freest bird is, along with every other created thing, held in constant check by a net of necessity. God is the only one that is free. So, if God is all-knowing, all-powerful, and absolutely free. And I gotta be careful here. <clears throat> Here's the answer to the questions that I'm gonna give you. The answer is no, no one. Would you, would you help me there? I'll ask the question, it's rhetorical. You just say no, no one. Cool, because that's the answer. 
Who would God seek for wisdom? Who would God bend the knee to? To whom would God have to ask permission? Who is mightier than God? Who is higher than the highest? Who outdates the Almighty? Who had to tell him where to place the stars? Who told him when and how to create man and the earth? No one. So, if God is all authority, all power, right? He's all-knowing and he's free. Two questions. Number one, and, and we don't have enough time to go through the whole thing. As a matter of fact, I'm hoping Steve will do it. Why is there evil? Why is there pain here on the earth, right? And why is there death? And number two, why does man have free will? So, number one, question number one. My answer is, I don't know. Okay, I really don't know. Uh, as, as deep as I dig, you know, I can get some answers. The Bible gives me a little bit of clarity. It gives me some snaps, some, some pictures of, of why I was in the state I was in and, and how I came out of it. But its origin, I get some small glimpses. Um, we know that Satan is involved in this whole thing called sin. We know that he's the father of lies. Scripture tells us that. We know that he is a murderer from the beginning. We know that he is a deceiver. We know that he hates what God has created and that he, has, he corrupted the heavenly order. <clears throat> there, were, there have been a lot of stories from different religions as to how they come to the answer of why we have evil, why we have pain, and why we have death. Some of the oldest have always had multiple gods. One of the oldest ones around is in, well, it's one of the oldest. It's one of the ones that I looked at too. It's called Zen Avesta. Zoros, I can't remember, I can't pronounce the name, so I won't, you know. But they came, up, they came up with the answer that the reason we have evil, pain, and death is because there are two main gods involved. One of them is a good god, and he takes care of all the good stuff, and one of them is an evil god, and he takes care of all. And neither, neither the two shall come together. So it's okay with us. We know that if, if we don't serve this evil god as much, we're going to be okay, we won't have as much. But if we serve the good god, we're going to be all right. We can see that in Greek mythology. They have the good gods. They have the bad gods. But for us as believers, we don't have that. We have one God who is supreme, who is sovereign. So, A.W. Tozer said, In his sovereign wisdom, God has permitted evil to exist in carefully restricted areas of his creation a kind of fugitive outlaw whose activities are temporary and limited in scope. In doing this, God has acted according to his infinite wisdom and his goodness. More than, more than that, no one knows at the present time. And more than that, he says, no one needs to know. The name of God is sufficient. It's a sufficient guarantee of the perfection of his works. So because God is sovereign, we do know a few things. We know that God will fully, will fulfill every promise that he has made to the prophets. We know that sinners will one day be cleansed out of the earth. Okay? We know that a, a ransomed people will enter into God's joy. We know that the righteous will shine forth in the kingdom of their Father God. We know that God's perfection 
will receive universal acclamation. We know that all created intelligences will own Jesus Christ as Lord to the glory of the Father. We know that the imperfect order will finally be done away with. And we know that the new heaven and earth will be established forever. I can't understand forever, but I know it's there. I know as long as God wills it, I will be with him. And those of you that know him, the same goes. Now, for the time being, <clears throat> things aren't always as good as they should be. The mystery of inequity is still at work. Sin still seems to be getting darker and darker. But God will have his way. And even though the storms get stronger, we are still responsible to make our choices in, in the present concerning our moral situation. So, God has determined a couple of things. Number one, he has, determined, he has determined that there will be a law of choice and consequences. Those that choose to willingly commit themselves to his son, Jesus Christ, in the obedience of faith, shall receive eternal life and become sons of God. Number two, he also decreed that all who love darkness and continue in rebellion against the high authority in heaven should remain in a state of spiritual alienation and suffer eternal death at last. Again, back to A.W. Tozer. And we're almost, we're almost done. He says, reducing the whole matter to individual terms, he says, we arrive at some vital and highly personal conclusions. In the moral conflict that, we now, that now rages among us, number one, Whoever is on God's side is on the winning side and cannot lose. Ever felt like you weren't on the winning side? There are times that we go through like that. We read the scriptures for comfort. We read the, the scriptures because we must. We get our food. We get our sustenance. You know, everything that we, that we live on, that we make our decisions on, and how we love people, how we like people. You know, how, we, how we're willing to invest our time and our energy in, in, in those that don't know Christ, those that may never know Christ. The scriptures give us all the energy we need to be able to do those things. <clears throat> so he says, whoever is on the other side, and there is, there is the other side. There are only two sides, brothers, sisters. There are those that know Christ that will come into his kingdom and there are those that will reject him until that final judgment. He says those on the other side, on the losing side, you cannot win. Here, at this moment, there's no chance, there's really no gamble. He said there is freedom to choose which side we shall be on, but no freedom to negotiate the results of the choice once it's made. By God's mercy, we may repent for the wrong choice and alter the consequences by making a new one and a right choice. But beyond that, we can't go. So the whole matter of moral choice centers around Jesus Christ. He that is not with me, Jesus said, is against me. And he said that no one comes to the Father except through me. That's a hard one. As you and I deal with family members, especially those that don't know him, 
and those that are constantly rejecting him. We always come back to the thought, Lord, are you just not calling them? You know, is that something that I have to settle in my heart, that this one you may never call? But as long as he has breath, I can pray, Lord, call him. I can do that. The gospel message embodies three elements. The first one is the announcement. This is the good news of redemption, the accomplishment of God's mercy. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, right? That those who believe bypass death and come into this eternal life with God. The second element is the command. It commands men and women everywhere to repent. He does. And the third one is the call. It calls all men and women to surrender to the terms of grace by believing on Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. We must all choose whether we obey the gospel of Jesus Christ or turn away in unbelief and reject its authority. Our choice is our own. But the consequences of the choice have already been determined by the sovereign will of God, and from this there is no appeal. Jim Elliot said that he is no fool who gives that which he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. If you have never, if you have never, or you have always stood on the fence and rejected Christ, today is the day to change that. I tell you truthfully, there is a winning side and there is a losing side. And you must fear that losing side. I was told once that you will never know if you're bound for hell. You will never know if you end up in hell until that very moment that you wake and you are in hell. But while you still have breath, you can come to an understanding that heaven is yours and not hell. I had to think about that one hard and long. Today we celebrate communion. For us that believe, we are reminded that what he did on the cross, he did for you and me. If If none of you were here in this auditorium today, he did it for me. If you were the only one here, he did it for you. It was his plan, his will, his sovereign will. He did not even stop that. He allowed the son to go, the agony, to go on the cross for you and for me. So that you and I would have a choice between heaven and hell. So, again, I remind you, if you do not know him, leave the elements alone. If you have... If you have business that you haven't taken care of with God, take care of it and then come and get the elements. If, we, if you would like to know him, now is the right moment. Before you come, I would love to sit down, speak with you. We have prayer counselors that would love to sit down and speak with you, bring you into a right relationship to an understanding of bringing Christ into your life for that eternal purpose. Let's pray. Father, we love you. And sometimes the word is so hard to understand. 
But Father, who would not fear you? You are the Lord of hosts. You are the high and awesome God. You alone are God. You have made heaven, and you made the heaven of heavens. You made the earth and all the things that are contained in the earth. You hold in your hand the very life of every living thing ever created. And I'm amazed at that. You sat as king over the great flood during Noah's time, and you sit king as king forever. You are the great king over the earth. You are clothed with strength, with honor, majesty are before you, and only you. We are reminded that on that faithful day, Lord, when you sat with the apostles, when you sat with the, with the disciples, then you reminded them that the blood that, that was going to be spilled was represented in the wine and that they should take it and remember of the new covenant. That the bread that you were breaking before them was your body that was yet to be broken. May we be faithful before you, O oh God, as we thank you for this time of communion. And we thank you for, for the fact that you are sovereign, that you are Lord, you are almighty. May we always remember that. You don't skip a beat, Lord. And we thank you in Christ's name. Amen.